Well, First Timothy chapter six, verse 17, we've been looking at the sixth chapter of First Timothy for a few weeks now. And if you look at it, it, there's several themes that go on here in this chapter. But one theme that keeps coming up is the theme of riches, of wealth, money, possessions, things that are of value. And, and it's all through the chapter. In fact, Paul begins chapter 6 with speaking to slaves, those people who don't have very much money, who are serving someone else with a lot of money. And he, he goes on to give them instructions about their life in the absence of money and riches. And then he goes to attack the false teachers. There were false teachers that were attacking the church of Ephesus. And part of the false teaching was this desire to be wealthy and this, this preaching on that godliness comes with great material gain. And he takes us through some of the verses there, verses 8, 9, and 10. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, Paul tells us. And the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And he tells Timothy, You, O man of God, flee these things. Flee the love of money and all of this false teaching that comes with it and pursue the Lord. And then when we get to verse 17, he comes back to the theme of riches, of wealth. And it's this verse that I want to look at. Originally I was going to preach all three verses, 17, 18, 19, but there's so much in this one verse that I want us to look at this morning. Let's read it together. Instruct, verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. If I were to ask you guys, how many of you think that you are rich? If I were to ask you that question, maybe I'd get a few hands. One or two, three. Many of you might think, no, I'm not rich. I want to be rich. I'd like to be rich, but I'm not rich. But... Really, this passage speaks to all of us here at Cornerstone. If if we were to look at all of us, all of us are very, very wealthy. Paul is speaking to those who have an abundance of possessions and money, and that's all of us. And it becomes apparent when we look at statistics and when we take a kind of a tour around the world. In fact, listen to some of these statistics. At least 80% of humanity lives on less than $10 a day. That's 4.8 billion people of the estimated 6 billion people on this planet. 56% of the world's population lives in extreme poverty and they survive on an income of less than $730 per year or $2 a day. That is 3.3 billion people. 28% of the world's population live on $1 or less a day. And that accounts for 1.7 billion people. According to the World Bank and their statistics, the average worldwide annual income is $5,000 a year. Let me put this in perspective. If you make $25,000, you are in the top 10% of the most rich, the richest people in the world. And you make more money than 5.4 billion people. And if you happen to make $47,500 or more, Congratulations, you are in the top 1% of the richest people in the world. You make more money than 5.94 billion people. There's only 60 million people that make more money than you do. You know, as you look at America and as we look at even Cornerstone, our church, we have so much stuff, so many things. We are all rich 
I love these photographs from Peter Menzel. He's a photographer who has done several art books. And one of the books that he did is called The Material World. And he went around and he photographed the average people in different countries. So he just took this average household in a particular country. He photographed them in front of their dwelling place with all of their possessions kind of laid out. This is a couple from Houston, Texas with all of their stuff in the cul-de-sac there. Um, not in the picture, by the way, is a refrigerator freezer, camcorder, woodworking tools, computer, glass butterfly collection, trampoline, fishing equipment, and all the guns that dad owns for deer hunting and other stuff. These guys are rich. And this, this is just average. Just average America. By way of contrast, here's an average family in India. She cooks over a wood fire in a windowless six-by-nine-foot kitchen and she labors from dusk till dawn. Her husband, 32, works roughly 56 hours a week when he can find work. In rough times, the family members have gone more than two weeks with very, very little food. Everything that they own, including two beds, three bags of rice, a broken bicycle, and their most cherished belongings, a print of Hindu gods, is what you see in this picture. Here's a family from Mali, the seventh largest country in Africa, in West Africa, where 90% of the population lives on $2 a day. The life expectancy there is 44 years of age for men and 47 for women. The average annual income for people in this country is $560 a year. In this picture is everything that this family owns. It's laid out on their rooftop. The only things that are missing is a mortar and a pestle for for grinding grain, two wooden mattress platforms, 30 mango trees, and some old radio batteries that the kids use as toys. Peter Menzel went around the world and he not only photographed people and their stuff, but he photographed what people eat in a typical week. He did the same thing all around the world. Here's a typical family on the East Coast with all their food that they're going to eat in one week. Just one week. And it totaled up to a grocery bill of about $350. That's their stuff right there. Looks pretty good. Um, This is a Sudanese family who are living in Chad as refugees. Um, And this is what they're going to eat for their week, including some of the water that is in the the, the containers in the back. And it totals up to a grand total of $1.23 for the week. You know, you begin to look at yourself and all that you have and you, you, you can't escape the reality that, that you are rich, that every one of us in this room is rich. And, and, and not only what you have right now, but if you look at the length of your life and all that you're going to come into possession of, all the money that you'll ever make, you are very rich. And Paul wants to speak to us who are rich this morning. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present age. And he has some instructions that follow. But notice what he says. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present age. You see, Paul has a message for us and it has to do with what we're going to do with our stuff in this, on this side of eternity before we die. We're going to be accumulating all these things, all these possessions, all this money and, and Paul wants to give us a vision for what we do with it. What are we supposed to do with all this, Paul? Look at verse 18. He says, instruct them to do good with it, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share it. See, God has a vision for every single thing that he's put in your life. Every dollar bill, every car, 
Every piece of clothing, everything that you have is from him. And he, he is, he's wanting you to do something with it. And, and, it, and, and it's unpacked here in verse 18. To do good with it. To be rich in good works. To be generous with it. Giving it away, but also sharing and bringing people into a community where you share those things with others. But before we can even look at that and those commands and what that looks like and what that would look like for us here at Cornerstone, Paul has to take us back first for just a second and he, and he wants us to, to look inward. He says, you can't even get where I want to take you just yet. You've got to look at your heart. Are you even ready to do this? Where are you with money? What do you think about it? How do you, how do you, how do you handle it? And so he's going to give us three instructions to prepare our hearts for investing in eternity. God wants us to invest that money for eternity, for His glory, for the sake of the gospel, for the benefit of other people. And and, and Paul's saying, I've got to give you some instructions first to prepare you to do that. So let's look at those instructions this morning. Instruction number one, and they're all found in verse 17. Number one, don't allow your wealth to make you proud. Again, verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present age world not to be conceited. Some of your translations say haughty, proud. The word literally means high-minded. And understand what pride is. Pride is a relational term. It involves two people. You see, one person, when you're proud, what you're doing is you're thinking highly of yourself and you're literally putting yourself above someone else in the way that you look at them, in the way that you treat them, in the way that you, you know, regard them and, and interact with them. And Paul is saying that there's something about wealth that is dangerous. It has the tendency, or it can have the tendency, to make us proud, to cause us to exalt ourselves. It's not the money that, that's the problem, it's us. It's our own hearts. And here comes Paul, and he's ready to do this heart work. He says, don't let wealth make you proud. Don't let the stuff that you have make you proud. How does it do that, Paul? Well, in two ways. Number one, with regard to other people. You see, as you get that first big job and you're, and you're making your first big money, there's a tendency to look at other people and go, wow, I feel sorry for that guy flipping burgers still at minimum wage. Or when you get that nice car, you're looking at other people driving that beater. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not that guy. And you begin to think, wow, you know what? I think it's my talent and my hard work and my, my goodness that has gotten me these things. And you begin to feel different and superior and special. And that's part of the pride that Paul wants to attack. He's saying, don't let riches do that. But there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a more grave and dangerous problem and potential, and that's that we would exalt ourselves above God himself. That we would begin to think higher of ourselves than even God. That as we look at all the stuff that we have, that we would begin to, to, to almost ignore and forget God. And Paul says this can happen in several ways. You can become proud towards God. You can exalt yourself above him as you begin to look at your wealth, to look at your money, to look at your bank account, to look at your house, and to begin to forget God. And begin to say, you know what, I don't need God actually. You know, God wants to provide this and this and this, but actually, I'm doing okay right here. I have everything that I need. We can begin to become independent, 
to exalt ourselves in our autonomy and our ability to provide for ourselves. No, God, I don't need help, actually. I have a really good job and I can really do anything I need and want with what I have. There's another way that we can be proud towards God and that's in, in, in becoming selfish. You see, we, we get so focused on our stuff and our, little, and our little possessions and we're building this kingdom and it's all of a sudden it's my kingdom come, my will be done instead of God's. And we forget that actually God is up to something here. He didn't just put us on this planet and give us all these things like just for ourselves. God is up to something. He has a kingdom that he's trying to build and he has a will that he wants to accomplish and he wants us to be a part of that. He wants everything we own and have to be and play a part in that. But when we become self-focused and selfish with our stuff, we just, we just, we're so amazed with it and we ignore, we forget. We're not even interested in what God's up to. This can happen with, with what we own and what we have. And there's, a, there's a third way that we can become proud towards God, and that's when we become ungrateful. We begin to look at that stuff and we say, man, I did this. I did this. I finally get recognized. I get that promotion that, I, that I've, been, I've been waiting for for five years. Finally, people see that I'm, I'm the man. And, we, and, and we, we exalt and glorify ourselves instead of saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you gave me this. Thank you that you provided this home. Thank you that you gave me another year working at this job. And Paul's saying, don't let riches make you proud. If you're going to do all that God has for you, his vision for your, how you're going to use stuff, then, then, then be humble. And so he, he, be, he begins to humble us with some truths. First of all, God is the source of all wealth. God is the source of all wealth. We need to remember this reality, this truth. God... Everything is His. He gave it to us. We did not create it. You think of passages like 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you, did re- that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Paul's saying, look, look at everything that you can see in your house, in your car, everything, everywhere that you go. All that you have, your bank account, everything, you received it. And you received it from God. Why are you boasting? Why are you becoming proud as if you did not receive it? For some of us who may become proud and think, that, no, I, you know, actually, I, I did this because I worked really hard for this. For Samuel 2.7 says, The Lord is the one who makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. See, it's nothing in you. It's not that you were, you were born with this richness and then now you become rich. God chose to make you rich if you're rich and to make you as poor as you are. It's him who, who decides these things. One of my favorite passages or chapters in the Bible is Deuteronomy 8, where, where it says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And, and here's God bringing the people. He's about to bring them across the Jordan River into the land of Israel. And, and, and yeah, they, had some, they, they plundered the Egyptians and had some gold and some other stuff. That's going to get used for the temple, not really for them. So they're really in these dirty clothes. They're trashed. They don't really have much. They've been wandering in this wilderness, eating the same kind of food the whole time. And now they're coming to this land flowing with milk and honey where they're going to have all of this stuff that they've never had before. And listen to God's warning. He says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes which I command you today lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have is multiplied then your heart be lifted up 
and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hands have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. Here's Moses warning the people. He's saying, look, not only does God give you everything and He is He the source of all things that you have, but even the ability to get that stuff comes from God. Your mind, your skills, your ability, your, your body and the, the strength that you possess, everything that you need and to get that wealth, God has He given even that stuff to you. So be humble, Moses is saying. And don't forget the Lord your God. Don't be lifted up. So remember that God is the source of all wealth, but He's also the owner of all wealth. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it, for He has founded it upon the seas and He has established it upon the rivers. Look at everything that your eye can see and it belongs to God. Every beachfront condo, every luxury car, every bank account, every computer, everything that your eye can see belongs to God. He says, it's mine. It's mine. It belongs to me. You know, sometimes we can forget that. We forget that, that something belongs to, to, to somebody else. I, I, I re- someone came over to my house about five years ago and we did some painting. He left his ladder there. And then, you know, we, we had the ladder so long, I used, every time I use it, change the light bulb, so that's my ladder. The kids play on the ladder, you know, it's dad's ladder. And about two weeks ago, a guy calls me and says, hey, can I get my ladder back? I'm like, what ladder? Wait a minute, that was his ladder. You know, it, it, it just, we can begin to start possessing stuff and have stuff for so long that we forget, this is God's stuff. This is his. Not only is he the owner of it, but God is the investor of it all. Everything that we have, he has invested into us. He's entrusted it to us. But more importantly, and very sobering, is the fact that he is requiring and expecting something from us with what he's given to us. You know, it's not like you can just, just take all your possessions and the rest of your life, just spend them and enjoy them and all that without, without using them for the Lord. He, he's coming one day and he's going to reward those who use their stuff for him, for his glory. I love the parable of the talents. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two And to another he gave one, each man according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. And immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and he dug a hole in the ground and he hid his master's money. And when the master comes back, Afraid, the, 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 the slave freaks out and he's all afraid. And he says, I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on arrival I would have received my money back with interest. You see, God's made a big investment in each one of us. He's invested us with lots of stuff. And he wants a return on that stuff. He wants us to employ it and use it for his kingdom and not for ourselves. That's a sobering, that's a sobering reality. Paul says, look, guys, God's got an awesome vision. It's not, this is not just drudgery either. This is like an opportunity. God says, look, I, I'm giving you every single thing that, that you have. 
And you get the freedom to choose how you're going to give it away and share it and bless and be rich in good deeds. I've given you this opportunity. This is, this is a blessing. But with that has come a lot of responsibility. And Paul says, you can't go there. You can't do that. You can't accomplish God's vision for that stuff, your wealth, unless you are humbled and unless you remain humble. Well, that's the first instruction. There's a second instruction, and that's don't put your hope in your wealth. Don't put your hope in your wealth. I love the term hope, the concept of hope. It's very rich. It's all over the Old Testament and also in the New but this concept of hope is so deep. I like what Paul, how Paul Tripp begins to define it. He, he brings out one aspect of this hope. He says, hope is a desire coupled with a logical or confident expectation of fulfillment. What he's saying is, what you do when you put your hope in something is you're, you're asking it for something. You're saying, wealth, riches, I, I have these desires and I, I want you to give me these things that I'm asking for. I want you to give me security and I want you to give me happiness and I want you to give me health and I want you to give me freedom and I want you to give me power and all these other things that I want and I actually really believe that you can do that. I'm going to trust that you can do that. So everything I'm asking for, I'm putting my hope in you to give me. See, that's what hope is. It's, it's an expectation and Paul says, don't do that. Don't put all of your expectations, your hopes, in riches. Actually, what he says is, he says, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty that is riches. The word uncertainty, it's adelates, the Greek word. And the A at the beginning is kind of like a, a, neg- a negating part of the word. So it's, it's the opposite of delos, which means something that's clear, that's evident, that's sure, that's real. Paul is saying, look, riches, are, they're not clear, they're not knowable, they're not certain, they're, they're unsure, they're always changing. It's like a, they're, they're like slippery. They're here one day and they're gone the next. It's like even dollar bills. We, we, we use paper for our currency. It's tied to gold, but, but that paper one day can buy $100 worth of things, but the next day we can, it can be worthless. We use it for starting a fire and, and, and having a barbecue when things get that desperate. See, he's saying, what, what, this stuff isn't even sure. It's, it's, not, it's not firm. It's not secure. It's not certain. Why are you putting your hope in something that, 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 that could be gone in a moment? Jesus, Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. You see, the uncertainty of wealth means that, that, that all our stuff, our money, our, all that we possess can be lost, it can be stolen, it can be broken, it can be destroyed, taken away, spent, replaced, devalued, forgotten even. Pick your verb. Melted. I mean, whatever. It, it, you, you, the list could go on and on and on. You know, if you, if you think about, you know, the reality of this, it, it hits home. I mean, many of us are experiencing that in our homes right now with the housing crunch. You know, we, my wife and I bought a home back in 2002 and we paid out just under about $200,000 for it. And a couple years ago, it was worth over four hundred. Man, we should have sold it then. We didn't know. We didn't know. I wish we had. But then, like, like, a, like, a, like a comet, it just plummeted. 
And now it's probably worth 150, 160, a little less than we paid for it. You know, many of you are looking to retirement accounts, and 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 they were at 100, 200 thousand dollars. Now they're worth 40. You know, it gets even more depressing. Cars, the minute you drive off the lot, the minute you turn that key and and turn the corner, 20 percent of the value of that car has just floated away. So if you bought a car for $30,000, you're driving a $24,000 car the minute you get on the freeway. $6,000 just gone like that. You know, if your car doesn't get lost or stolen or, or you know, if you don't wreck it, and if it lasts five years, it's only going to be worth 65% of what you got it for. I remember buying my first digital camera, the SLR. I was so excited. I won't tell you how much I paid for it, but I paid a lot for it. I was so excited about it. But then two years later, what happened? The next model came out. What was it worth? It was a piece of plastic. I, I, I probably couldn't get much on it you know, out of eBay or, or, or Craigslist. I wouldn't be able to recoup anything. And that's the thing. Computers, you know, all this stuff. It just, it just, it's, it's not certain, Paul says. It's not certain. Even your money in a, in a certain economy can just lose its value just sitting there. When, when interest rates are low enough and inflation is high enough, just sitting there, your money is losing value. It's, it's going away. Proverbs, I like what Proverbs 23 says. Don't weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle and then it flies away. And there it goes. Never to be seen again. It's amazing how even wealth can be forgotten. Someone was telling me about a show recently where these, these kind of like antique guys go around and they're, they're, they're cruising for like treasures and people's farmhouse, farm barns and things like that. And, and, you know, they'll show up and, and this old man, is, you know, escort them to the, to the barn and they'll pull out this, like, amazing thing that's been sitting in there, like, collecting dust for 20 years and, like, oh, can we buy this from you? And the guy's like, oh, what is it? You know, and they, they tell him, oh, it's worth a lot. And, and, uh, and he's like, oh, no, 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 I, I actually want it now. You know, it's like, why did you just sell the thing? You know, but it's that, it's that even, we even forget stuff. We even forget possessions and wealth. It just, it just sits laying waste in a, in a barn somewhere. Paul says, don't put your, your hope in that which is uncertain. You know, even, even something that could be so sure. Man, when I was young, you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to win the lottery. If I could just win the lottery, oh, I'd be done. No more work. No, I could buy whatever I want. I could do whatever I want. Even that, it's not so sure. This is, this is William Post. He doesn't look so happy, does he? In 1988, William Post won $16.2 million in the Pennsylvania lottery, but now he lives on his Social Security check. His former girlfriend sued him for a share of his winnings, and one of his brothers was arrested for hiring a hitman to kill him, hoping to inherit a share of the winnings. His relationship with his other siblings was also strained, and he spent even some time in jail. Within a year, he was $1 million in debt and had to declare bankruptcy. And after a twin-engine plane and two Harleys and a couple of cars and six marriages, he now lives on $450 a month and food stamps. You know, something that you think is so sure, man, I've got it this time. This is it. It, 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 it can go. It can go away. And some of you, well, I, you know, if I won the lottery, I wouldn't be that stupid. You know, I'd, 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 I'd invest it really well and I'd, I'd keep it going and I'd be set. I would be set. But even that... Even that, what's going to happen the moment that you're dead? The moment that you, that you die? I love the parable of the rich man. Oop. What did I just do? 
parable of the rich man. It says, and a rich man, he, he's so rich, he's like, what do I do with all this stuff? I've, I've, I've arrived, I've made it. I, 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 can, I can relax. He says, what, are, what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my stuff. I have so much stuff. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build, build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods. Laid up for many, many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. But God said to him, Fool, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that, have been pre- that you have prepared, whose will they be? God said, not yours. You're dead. See, I love what Randy Alcorn says. He sums it up about the uncertainty of wealth. He says, either it leaves us while we live, or we leave it when we die. There's no exception. That's it. That's how you can sum up wealth in its uncertainty. There's another reason that, that, that Paul doesn't want us to put our, our hope in wealth. Not only is it uncertain, and it, 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 it's slippery, it, it, it's not sure, but it disappoints. It disappoints. There's some things that wealth just cannot do. There's some, remember, remember that concept of hope? We're asking wealth, we're asking our money and our riches, we're saying, do this for me, bring me this happiness, bring me all of this stuff that I want. And wealth is saying, you know what, I I actually can't do that. I really can't do that. The most important things in this life can't be gotten with wealth. Family, friends, children, health. You know how many rich movie stars have tried to preserve their life down to the last breath? They spent millions on some innovative technique or this or that, and they're still dead. Wealth can't get you happiness Maybe fleeting moments of happiness and joy, but it's gone. Ask this guy, William Post. This, this idea of security, that you're asking, well, just take care of me when I get old. In my retirement, be there for me. And sometimes he can't do it. True freedom. Wealth can't bring that. Or salvation. You see, there's just some things that you can't ask wealth to do. But there's, there's, this, there's this other side of hope that, that I want to talk about because hope isn't just you're asking riches to do something that it can't or you're, you're expecting something from it. But when you hope in riches, what you're doing is not only are you asking, but you're, you're taking your heart and you're actually saying, here, wealth, I'm actually going to give you my life and I'm going to give you my heart and I'm actually going to become your slave Listen to what Paul Tripp says again in his chapter on hope in A Quest for More. He says, but hope is much more than this, this, this idea of expectation, of asking and expecting and, and, and being confident that, 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 that something will deliver. He says, when I place my hope in something, I'm attaching my sense of well-being, my identity, meaning and purpose to that thing in some way. See why Paul is saying, don't put your hope in in, in riches. Not only is it uncertain, not only can it not provide all of what you're asking for, it, but you're giving yourself to it and you end up becoming a slave to it. See, the man who is, who is hoping in riches, he's so consumed with trying to maintain this because that's where his hope is. So if this goes away, he's, he's toast, he's done. There's no more hope. Life's not worth living. So he has to take care of this. He can't give away anything, maybe a little bit, but not, not too much. And he, 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 he wakes up and, and spends hours thinking about it and, and, and being consumed with it. And all of his life revolves around this. 
And before you know it, this is his master. And Jesus said it himself. He said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. He's saying, if you're going to put your hope in wealth, then you've decided whom you're going to serve. You've given your life away, and you're going to be consumed here, and you're not going to, be, you're not going to have time for God. He's not even going to enter onto your radar because you're so busy consumed with this, and this has become your master. Paul says, if, 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 you're, going to, if you're going to do all that, that God wants you to do with your stuff, with, your, with every dollar, with every possession, you've got to get your hope off of wealth. It's only disaster that's going to come as a result of that. His third instruction is this. First of all, don't put, or don't allow your wealth to make you proud. Don't put your hope in wealth, but number three, put your hope into God. He says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies to us all things to enjoy. Again, Paul Tripp, in in, in just unpacking hope, I love what he says about it. He says this, he says, True hope, the kind that will never disappoint, it's never hope in a thing It's always hope in a person. And for us in this room, we know who that person is. That is God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, look, what I've got to do with you, before I can tell you what to do with all this stuff and give you God's vision for your wealth, I've I've got to take your head and I've got to turn it away from that stuff and I've got to put it on God and just look at God. You know, last week we spent some time staring at God. We looked at that doxology in the previous verses and we looked at all that it shows us about God and Paul's doing the same thing here he's saying you want to put your hope in God then just look at him fix your eyes on him and see who he is look what Paul says he says the God who richly supplies to us all or supplies to us all all things to enjoy you see as, as we gaze at God we're not only looking at him but we're getting a picture into his very heart. We're getting to see who this God is. And as we see him, that's what's going to cause us to want to, to, to be attracted to him, to put all of our hope there and to say, wow, how could I not put my hope in this one? I would be an idiot not to do that. And look what we see as we, as we, as we gaze just in this verse. It says, God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Number one, he is a rich God. He is a rich God. You know, this week in the news, they were talking about a, some unnamed bidder on eBay who won an auction. He paid $2.6 million to have lunch or dinner with Warren Buffett, the third richest man in the world. And uh, it, was, it was for charity, I guess, and the guy had the money, thought he was doing a good thing probably, and Probably not a big deal for him, but that's still $2.6 million for a dinner date. It's him and seven people that he gets to bring in. And he did it, obviously, because he wants to be with a very powerful, rich man. I mean, Warren Buffett, you know, 
It's about four, his, his net worth is probably somewhere around $47 billion. This one man, that's what he's worth. And, and you think about how people do that. They, they, want, they want to attach them to themselves to something of value, someone that they can put their hope in. And often it is, for some people, it is people like that. Because Warren Buffett represents all of this power and, and, and wisdom. It's funny though, the ironic thing is, when you have dinner with him, guess what you can't talk about? You can't talk about investing. He's not going to tell you where, what he's buying and selling. We can talk about baseball, you can talk about, you know, World Cup, whatever you want to talk about. But he's not going to talk about what he's buying and selling. So, if you, if you pay the 2.6 million for that, you're, you're hosed. But if you, if you thought it was still worth it and to, to have the stakes and hang out with him, well, yeah, I guess you're getting your money's worth. But, but think about that, what people go to, to to be with a rich person, to invest and to get close to him. And, and, and God is saying, look at me. I am the richest being in the universe. Psalm 89.11 says, The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, because you have founded them. And not only is it everything that you could look at, Every piece of real estate, everything that, every, everything that you see with your eyes on this earth is the Lord's. Not only that, but everything in the heavens. And, and also, not only that, but everything that is invisible to us. So it's not only is it like he owns you know, all of the earth, but he owns the moon, and, and he owns everything like that. But he owns things that we don't even see yet, or can see yet. He owns things that we won't see until the future, that are above and beyond all that we could ever think about or, or, or imagine. God is the richest being. And he's saying, why are you wasting your time hanging out with guys like, like Warren Buffett? Or worse, why are you, your little, your little pile of possessions, why are you putting your trust in that? I'm, I'm, I'm the richest person in the world. You need to come to me and you need to, you need to put your hope in me. Not only is God rich, but look at what the passage shows us. He richly supplies. He is a giving God. You know, it, it would be one thing if this God, you know, he had all this stuff, but it's just like, well, you're, you, know, you guys are over there. Hello, I'm here, and I'm the richest being, and we're just going to keep it that way. You're going to be over there with, your, with nothing, and I'm going to be here with everything. But no, God gives. He gives, and he gives, and he gives. He gives us all things. And in fact, you want to know God's love? Look at what he's given. Look at what he's given. One of the most well-known verses in all the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world. It's not he loved the world so much. No, it's you want to know what love is? It's in this way that he loved. For God in this way loved the world. Here's here's the way he loved. That he gave. That he gave. What did he give? He gave his only begotten son. See, when it says hope in this God who richly gives or supplies we, we can hope in him. He's given us the most important thing. He just didn't give us some kind of fringe stuff. He said, you know what, I got some stuff in this closet, you can have that. No, he said, you know what, I'm going to give you the most prized thing that I have, and that is my son. I'm going to give you myself. And if God's done that, man, we can have hope in this God. Romans 8:32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us everything? You want something to put your hope in? Put your hope in this God. He's a loving God. He's a giving God. He's a lavish God. It says he richly gives. He richly gives. 
Not only is he lavish, he's lavishing on us all the time, but he's dependable. It's a present tense verb. It's not the God who gave, but the God who is continually giving. What you had 10 years ago, what you have today, what you're going to need and, and have in 20 years from now, that's all from him. And he can do it because he's eternal, he has infinite resources, and he just keeps pumping it out. And it just keeps coming, and it just keeps coming. And God's saying, look, what, 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 why are you hoping over here and over there? Just look at me. I'm the one who's going to take care of you. I'm the one who's going to give you all things. Notice that also he's a gracious God. You know, Paul could have said this. He could have said, command those who are rich not to be proud, not to put their hope in the uncertainty of riches, but in God who gives to them all things. But notice the word, if you, if you look at the text, he says, no, who gives to what? You can, you can actually participate. Who gives to who? To us. To us. In fact, what he's saying is not just to the rich, but everybody. God, God gives to people ultimately who are undeserving, wicked sinners, regardless of what they have or don't have. God is a gracious God. He gives to everyone. How many things have we gotten from God that we didn't deserve? How many things have we gotten from God that we squandered? How many things have we gotten from God that we, we, we just wasted, but he keeps giving? He's so gracious. He's so gracious to us. And Paul's saying, look at this God. Put your hope in Him. Not only is He gracious, but He's wise. Notice what it says. He says, He gives to us all things, everything. Not only did He give us His Son, but He said with that, with, because He's given us His Son, He can give us all things. Now, notice, here's the caveat. Not everything you want, but everything you need. See, He's, he's a wise God. He only gives you that which is good, that which you need. You know? First, or James 1.17 says, Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Only that which is good and perfect for you and I is what we get from Him. And so we can trust Him. We can put our hope in this one. He's going to give us everything we need and nothing that we don't. And lastly, He's a joy-filled God. He's a joyful God. Notice what he says. He gives, he gives us all things to enjoy. You know, part of that enjoyment, yes, he wants us to enjoy things. You know, I was talking to Milton. I don't know if he shared this in a sermon or not, but Milton was talking about how, you know, God could have given us, you know, food that tasted like dirt or trash. But, but he, every, every savor, every flavor is like, a, that's like for our enjoyment. Like every single thing that we get from the Lord and have and experience, it's, it's like for our enjoyment. He, he, he's not a God who says, here, have it. No, he's like, I want you to have this. I want you to have this. Taste this. Try this. Experience this. So he, obviously he, he wants us to enjoy the things that he gives us, but he wants, to, he wants us to have our enjoyment ultimately in him. You see, as we, as, we, as we experience the things that he's giving us, we're going, wow, God, thank you. And we're enjoying him. And as we, as we try something over here, or as we come into possession of something over here, we're like, wow, Lord, Thank you. And we're enjoying Him. Part of that enjoyment also, as we're going to see in the next verses, comes with what we give away also. God says, look, be like me. I get to give away all the time and it gives me pleasure. Jesus said, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. He knew what it was going to give. He knew that what He was going to get from it and it was a pleasurable thing. Even the cross for Jesus, there was joy in it. And God says, I'm a God of joy and I enjoy giving you these things 
And I want you to, to feel that also. When you give away, I want you to enjoy these things. So look at God. Look at the God that, that just from this one verse that we can see, Paul saying, look at Him. Fix your hope on Him. And as you, as you compare, as you start to compare, you start, your, your little, you know, your, your few bank accounts and your car, your home, all the things that you have, and, and as you weigh them on a scale and you begin to look at the God who Paul's describing, I mean, there's no comparison. One is unsure, uncertain, but Psalm 102 says the Lord is forever. It says, Of old you laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. All of this will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. See, when we look at God, we see someone who is not uncertain, but very certain. He's very knowable. He's very for sure. He's the real deal. He's not going anywhere. That's the one we can put our hope in. Not only that, but but hope in God. Unlike the wealth, it won't disappoint. Everything that we ask God for and we entrust to Him, He will give it. He will give us true freedom. He will give us true happiness. He will give us true security. He will give us all of the things that only come with a hope that is bound up in Him. Romans 5, 5 says, and hope, and he's talking about hope in the Lord. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he gave to us. If you, if you don't want a hope that disappoints, then you only have one option, the Lord. He's the only one that can meet all of your expectations and take all of your hope and, 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 and deliver Paul Tripp, he says, Hope is about entrusting my past, my present, my future, my identity, my meaning, my purpose, and my motivation for daily functioning and entrusting that to God and resting unafraid in Him. You know, the amazing thing is that you can find out what you're hoping in by what your fears are, what your nightmares are, and what you're scared of. Scared of not having enough money for the kids to go to college? It keeps a lot of men up at night. Because often we're putting our hope in our job or our, our bank account or the lack of what's in it and we're freaking out. You're not sure if you're going to have enough to retire on? And then that, does that keep you up at night? Maybe because you're putting your hope there. But when our hope is in God, look what Paul Tripp says. He says, you can rest unafraid in Him. No more anxiety. No more fear of the unknown because God is certain He doesn't disappoint. And he'll deliver. You know, the the final reason that we need to put our hope in God is that it's it's what we saw with, with riches. When you put your hope in something, again, you're taking your heart, you're taking all of your life, your meaning, your purpose, all of your energies, all of your being, and you're giving it away to that thing. And God says, I want you to give yourself to me. And I want to be the greatest treasure and possession that you have. You know, I want to end on this, on this verse. Luke 18. Story of the rich young ruler. It's a tragic story. And a ruler asked him, came up to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, one thing. You see, the one thing that he hadn't done yet is he hadn't given himself to Jesus. He hadn't taken himself and entrusted all of his hope, all of his faith in Jesus. He still was holding on to what he had, this, this little pile of stuff. He says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow after me. But when he heard this thing, these things, he became very, very sad for he was extremely rich. You see, this is crazy. This young man came face to face with the God of the universe, the richest being, Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, look, I just want one thing. There's still one thing you have left to do. You need to get your eyes off of this and put them on me. Make me your treasure. Put all of your hope in me. And, and, then, you, and then what you can do is you can work for me. You can go and give away and sell all your possessions. And, and guess what? It's not like you're going to come out empty-handed. You're going to have me and you're going to have riches in heaven, treasure in heaven. And come and follow me with the rest of your life. And, and when that young man had that choice before him and he saw what he had and what God was offering, what Jesus was, was, was asking him to do, he chose this one. And I just can't imagine what he might have felt that the moment that, that death came on that side of eternity when he realized and he gazed on the God that he ought to have hoped in. And he realized that his, his, his riches, they totally let him down. They didn't save him. They didn't deliver him. They didn't ultimately satisfy him like Jesus could have. You see, guys, God knows... God has a plan for our wealth and we're going to see that as we keep unpacking this passage. God has a plan and he wants to show us really practically what it should look like here in our families, in our church. He, he's already showed us some of that that we need to be investing in our homes and our families and taking some of our wealth and investing in the church and, and, and doing good and being, being the gospel with our riches. God is saying, look at me and then be me to other people. But he says, before you do that, he says, I have a plan for your wealth but what I really want is you. I want a heart that's trusting fully in me and I want a heart that's going to see me and value me and hope in me as the greatest treasure on earth. As the ushers come forward, let's, let's bow our heads and let's just, just ask God to, to do this heart, kind of, this heart change that's necessary in each one of us. It is so tempting to look at the little, the stuff that we have and even what we don't have but what we're longing for and to say, oh, if I only had that. And we don't realize what we're doing. We're putting our hope in those things. We're giving our heart away and our lives away to that. We're putting all of our hopes and dreams and expectations. And what Paul wants us to do is turn our head from those things and see the Lord Jesus, see the God of the universe as the only one that we can hope in and to be humbled and then to be freed up to take all that he gives us every dollar every possession and say now what do you want me to do with this Lord I'm excited and I'm ready to give away and to do anything you want with it let's pray Father we thank you for this verse we thank you for the Apostle Paul who brought it we thank you for um, just 
the hope that we can have in you. Lord, we don't want to worship riches. We don't want to invest our lives and our hearts, all of our energy and time and hope and dreams in them, but in you. Lord, help us to see our wealth for what it is. It's a tool. It's a way to glorify you, to enjoy you. But Lord, you are the real treasure. You are the glorious treasure. And Lord, help us to remember that the only reason that we have this hope is because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. If Jesus hadn't given up himself, we would be in trouble. But it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich in him. Lord, help us to cling to Jesus, our only hope, and help us to take our eyes off that which we have, to be wise with it, to only, to only use it for that which does good and glorifies you, Lord. And as we give our offerings even right now, Lord, direct our hearts, guide our hearts to, to, to give away, and to give and give and give, knowing that you supply everything richly for us to enjoy. Lord, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our awesome Lord and Savior. Amen.